But welcome to uh, what some sociologists are calling the age of outrage, where everybody is mad at something and that they're mad at you for not being mad at the thing that they're mad at, right? It doesn't matter what it is. You spend 30 seconds online, you see the latest uh, outrage, the latest thing we're supposed to be mad about. And ultimately, uh, we just don't know how to handle our anger, and it spills out on all kinds of people that maybe it wasn't intentionally directed towards. But what we've been discovering in this series is that there's a way to diffuse our anger, to understand the source of our anger, to diffuse it so that we can engage with the grace of God in the midst of a culture that's all about outrage. And so three weeks ago, we kicked off the series, and we talked about we need to look introspectively at many times our anger boils over, but we're actually angry at ourselves. We haven't forgiven ourselves. We haven't accepted the grace that Jesus offers us. And so we need to forgive ourselves the way that Jesus has already forgiven us. Last week, we put the microscope on church people, on many of us Jesus followers, and how, did you guys know that sometimes church people don't get along with other church people? You guys heard this? I, maybe I shouldn't tell you that secret. But I mean, 3,400 different denominations can't be wrong, right? Uh, but we talked about how God has invited us to unity and to work towards unity. And unity always begins with me instead of pointing it out at the other person. And so that's what Jesus followers are called to do towards each other. Today, we're going to look outside of the church and how when there's a changing world outside of the walls of our churches, how did Jesus followers actually respond to it? Are we supposed to just get mad about it? <laughs> Are we supposed to take a different kind of posture? But to get us going in this direction this morning, uh, you know that old adage, there's two types of people in the world, right? You've heard that before. I, sometimes I hate it. It's kind of fun sometimes, too, if you have a crowd of people. Uh, so I thought we'd do some classic rivalries to sort of see how divided we are as a room this morning, like any pastor would do, right? Let's see how divided we actually are, us versus them in the room this morning. Some classic rivalries. We'll start here. Cats versus dogs. Any cat people in the house? Oh, my gosh. In, in the church of Jesus Christ? <laughs> cat people. Dog people, right? Don't you cat people know that your cat will just eat you if you pass away? Like, they don't really love you. Anyway, we'll move on from that. I got a lot of room to grow. Uh, here's another classic rivalry here. Android versus Apple. Any Android people in the house? Yeah, yeah. Team Green. I don't understand you, but I still love you, I guess. And then Apple people. I'm all part of that ecosystem. I'm too deep in it now to ever change what I feel. But Android people, what, what do you guys like, money or something? You don't want to spend all your money on this? This is crazy. I don't quite understand it. Uh, here's another classic rivalry. Uh, LeBron versus Michael Jordan. And look at the number 12. That's a deep fake technology going on on Michael Jordan right now. I don't quite understand that. But LeBron versus Michael Jordan. I won't make people raise hands because we don't want to encourage shame in our church any farther than we already have. But you know there's people that like are diehard on one side or the other, and I am <coughs> Team MJ for sure. Uh, we got this one right here in classic movies, Star Wars versus Star Trek. Any, any Star Trek people that are like, oh, man, there are a couple people here. We're raising our kids in the way of the Force and the way of Jesus, so that's what we're doing <laughs> in our home. And if you know our four-year-old Jack, he, uh, he, whenever you call him Jack, he's like, no, I'm Darth Vader. He's really into that. I keep trying to turn him into, you know, you're Anakin Skywalker. He goes, Anakin's gone. I'm like, this is too dark. Um, <laughs> This <laughs> classic story there. One more we got going here. Batman versus Superman, right? So who's team Batman? The Dark Knight. Yeah, we got some people. Superman? Look at there's Actually, I don't, I don't get it. I don't get it all. I could argue, actually, if I go deep nerd here, that neither, I mean, only Superman is a superhero because he has superpowers. Batman's superpower is just he's, like, really rich and had a sad childhood. That's about the only thing he's got going for him, but he's still the coolest of all of the superheroes, right? 
But, you know, people have different places uh, on the spectrum here. If you're Batman, Superman, Android, iPhone, we all fall in different places in this us versus them. But isn't it also true that increasingly over the last couple of years, um, our culture at large has really found their places on the us versus them continuum in much more serious ways, much uh, more serious ways that charge us emotionally and bring lots of different emotions to the surface. Uh, Democrat versus Republican, these political tribes have been more of, don't worry, I'm not going to make people raise their hands for this. It's going to be a bloodbath here. But our political tribes and who we voted for has become a real big part of our identity as Americans over the last years. Pro-life versus pro-choice. We saw the energy and the emotion behind that debate, and we continue to see that. Traditional gender and sexual ethics versus progressive gender and sexual ethics. In a world that's increasingly changing, there are people that have really planted their flag on one side of this argument in an us-versus-them battle. We saw this uh, Black Lives Matter versus All Lives Matter or Blue Lives Matter. Everybody had something that mattered the most to them, and the other side just didn't get it. They were breaking everything down. During COVID, did we forget already all of the us versus them and COVID vaccinated versus unvaccinated, masked versus no masks? And we saw these battle lines drawn over and over and over again. And what I witnessed so often was just the anger and the vitriol that one side always had for the other. There was never a good faith argument of, man, they just see this differently. No, the other side was destroying the world, destroying our way of life. They are the enemies. And somehow or another, the person talking was always the good guy (laughs) in this situation. And I think it's important for us, before we dive into how Jesus calls us to respond to these situations, it's important for us to do a little bit of an autopsy of, like, how did we get here? (laughs) Like, how did we get to this place where uh, we are more polarized, more tribal in our culture uh, than we've been in a really long time? And and I think we have to just take a step back wherever you are on the political spectrum or however you have a a different worldview. We have to understand that uh, there's a couple reasons why this has happened. Uh, The first reason is media. Like our media has changed us, the way that we ingest media, the way that we consume media, and then what that media has done to us is something that's led to so much more of an us versus them reality. With technology and social media using algorithms, I don't know if you know this, but if you search something, sometimes if you just say a word near your phone, you're going to be piped into an algorithm or a collection of other things that are reinforcing that thing that you said or searched, like creepy stuff, right? But your phone is like locking you into these algorithms. It's a crazy thing because most of us, if we use YouTube, we're logged in through something. If you, you know, log yourself out of YouTube and you have no suggested videos, YouTube doesn't know what to do. They'll send you like the most benign, like everybody likes this, like either pictures of puppies or, do- or little dogs and stuff because they don't know what to do. Because all the media that we consume because of algorithms are like curated for us directly. And what that curation does is it helps us not see other people and their perspectives or the other side of these arguments because we're only fed one thing or another. And these views that come out through these online algorithms lead to online communities. And online communities of people that don't see each other and see the whites of each other's eyes, but they agree on something, man, those things grew like crazy during the pandemic and have continued to thrive. And then political parties and who we vote for became more of our identity and the tribe that we see the world through. So our media has changed us a lot and created a lot of us versus them. Not only that, but I think it's important, especially important for me, someone who's like a middle millennial generationally, 
to see that our world has changed a lot in the last 30 years. And it has rapidly changed. It is increasingly fast in the way that change is happening on social norms and the way that our world is run. I mean, the internet and accessibility to all information, all at once for all people, it's brought some good, but it's also brought a lot of change and it's brought a lot of bad that's at the fingertips of each and every one of us. There's rapidly changing sexual norms. I mean, to think that Ellen came out on TV only 26 years ago and how taboo that was to the way that we see sexual norms today in our culture, like that's a lot of change really, really fast. There's changing demographics in our country to where people look differently than they did 30 years ago and we're becoming more and more of a melting pot that leads lots of people to lots of different conclusions. And this has all happened over the last 30 years. And cable news 30 years ago wasn't the force for change that it is now. And cable news, we can talk about left-leaning cable news or right-leaning cable news. But you know what they're all really leaning towards? is conflict. Because they know one of the oldest rules of journalism. If it bleeds, it leads. If it divides, it's a huge seller. And these have become forces of nature in our culture. And we need to just stop and realize that uh, if you're a Jesus follower or not, that these forces have taken us on a ride. And I think sometimes it's helpful just to say, okay, this is what's happened. So now how do we respond to it instead of just going with the flow of being angry and mad and pointing the finger and picketing the people that are against what you did? And for me, and you guys can disagree with me all you want, and that's okay. I love having those kind of conversations. But I think when you look at the way that church people, Jesus followers, have responded in the face of all the change and all of the media uh, that, that's different that we're receiving now, I think there's two dominant postures that the church has had towards the outside world, to people that don't see the world the way that they do, that don't trust Jesus. Two main postures. And... Um, Heads up, they're not positive postures in my opinion. But the first one is this, fear. I think overall church people to our changing world that we have ultimately just been afraid of it. We fear what we don't understand and so much that we see in our culture and our society is different than what we grew up in. And then we think about our kids and the world that they're going to grow up in. And if we, don't, if we didn't experience it, then we don't know how to raise them or protect them. And so we respond with fear. Fear. We always fear what we don't understand because in, in this fear mindset, we're thinking the world is going to hell in a handbasket and uh, we better just batten down the hatches here because we don't know what to do. And this is what's so crazy. We just get mad about the way that the outside world is treating things. And what does fear ultimately lead us to? It leads us to being angry because we have to change. We have to think differently. We have to adapt so that we move forward. And it makes us mad at people. The other posture that I think church people ultimately have led into is more of a defense posture, playing defense, that we need to batten down the hatches. We need to understand that we're in a war versus them, and we're the good guys, and they're the bad guys. And even if we're not going to take the offensive and take a sword to them, then we at least need to call back our defensive lines, and we need to uh, organize against certain things, and we need to defend, defend, defend. And what happens in the posture when Jesus following people, when church people, when we get to this defensive mindset, you know what we do with our hands towards everything? We move them from open hands to clenched fists. Interesting thing I heard about clenched fists, when you're like so on defense all the time, you just moved your clenched fist up about a foot, 
and you're in a fighting position. You're ready to attack, attack, attack when anything that threatens what you've understood and how you have lived happens. You hold on so tightly in this war of us versus them, and we need to fight back because we've got the truth and they don't have the truth. Anybody having their toes stepped on this morning outside of me? Fear and defense is naturally what we fall back into to a changing world when it feels like we don't know what's happening outside of the walls of our church and when it seems like what's happening in the scriptures is increasingly different than what we see in our culture. This is where we fall. And before we move further, I know in in these kind of messages, sometimes uh, we think to ourselves, man, I just wish that they were here to hear that. Oh, man, if they were here, this would be really good for them. I mean, I just, I'm, I'm going to send them all the texts, the quotes, and everything they talk because they need to hear this. Let's, before we move forward, would you guys just repeat after me just a couple words at a time? This message today, this message today is, for me. is for me. Yes, for me. Yes, for me. I always have room to grow. I always have room to grow. <laughs> amen. I got an amen to that, right? Let's move on. Let's think about ourselves. And I want us to think about this question before we move further into this. Who is the them for you? Who are those people, the people that you feel like are breaking down the way that you want to see the world, the way that you understand the world to be in God's kingdom? Like, who, who is it for you? Who are the them? Is it an atheist, an agnostic, a secular person? Is it someone who has a different social norm than you do? Is it a member of another political party that you think is the enemy? Who's the them for you? And trust me, I'm not coming at you like attacking you because, man, this is hard for me too. You better believe I'm not void of opinions about everything. And this is something that I have to wrestle with, something that I want to grow in. I need to grow in as well because Jesus doesn't play in the us versus them dichotomy. It's not binary in that way for him. Because newsflash, Jesus is for everybody, and he loves everybody. And he challenges us in this us versus them dichotomy, and he he lifts our eyes to a different way to respond when we feel like we've got this bubbling anger towards the other side of these things that we care about. And actually, in in the New Testament letter, 2 Corinthians, Paul is writing to a group of people in this place called Corinth, and Paul is an first century leader of the church, church planter, and he's helping these early Jesus followers try to understand how to live out their faith. And in in the second letter that he writes to the church in Corinth, there's a lot of people there that are questioning his authority and his mission, his ministry. And in this, Paul spends a lot of time saying, hey, you guys should trust the way that we're approaching ministry, the way that we're telling people about Jesus. I want you to trust my authority, and I want you to trust what we are up to and how we're doing it, and I want to invite you to do it the same way. And in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul spells out this posture that him and his compadres, his partners in the ministry, how they have towards an outside world, to people that don't believe in Jesus. Oh, and man, I think there's so much we can learn about this posture that Paul and his friends have when we're angry at the others in our culture. Paul begins this section. He says this. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all, that Jesus is that one who died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. This is a beautiful truth of like, man, because of what Jesus did, we're coming after everybody. We're compelled to tell everybody about the love of Jesus and how he's inviting everyone into a relationship with him. 
And then he says this, so from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. This worldly point of view, actually, it's rendered in the original Greek as according to the flesh. And some commentaries I read this week said that's tied to this language uh, right above that says uh, that you should no longer live for themselves. Because according to the flesh is the idea of the Greek word sarks. You know, say sarks with me, one, two, three. Sarks. Sarks is the animal appetite just to take what we want, to do things on our terms, and to live for ourselves, to satisfy our stomach, our drives. And Paul's saying that, you know, we don't live for ourselves anymore. We don't consider other people just them living for themselves, just a bag of guts and bones. We see them from a higher way because they matter to God. And he says this next, next verse. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. Memory verse alert, memory verse alert, hobby lobby sign alert, right? Like we've seen this a lot, right? This is so comforting. This is so beautiful. But I don't want us to miss the power of what Paul is saying here, the message of Jesus, that this new creation has come, that Jesus at the cross and through his resurrection wasn't just about getting you out of here to heaven. He's bringing a whole new creation to this world. He's not given up on this world. He wants to reform it, reshape it, restore it, and bring beautiful things in the here and now in you individually, but also in our world. And he's saying that anybody who's a part of this, man, the old life is gone and the new life has come. And he says that Jesus did this. God did this through reconciling us to himself, to making what was broken in relationship right to himself. And we, all, we read this verse all the time, or we see it on Facebook, we see it on a sign, and we're thinking, what a beautiful thing that Jesus did for me, what an amazing, hopeful truth that the old is gone, the new has come, and it's still coming, right? And that's, that's true, but what's fascinating about this grammatically is that this is not the end of the sentence. You notice there's no period there at all, and there's not going to be a period at the end of what I revealed to be the next thing that Jesus said, or that Paul says. He says this, that uh, he says, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. He says, you know what's happening in this new creation that Jesus is bringing is that he's making you new and he's inviting you to work. He's given you a job. He's given you a mission, the ministry of reconciliation. And, and sometimes we're like, oh gosh, I mean, I like the idea of like Jesus doing this for me, but I've got a job now. That's part of what this whole thing looks like. I've got a vocation. I've got a mission. Don't you know I've already got a job, Jesus? And don't you know that I'm raising kids and we're busy? Yeah, all these kind of things. We forget that this is always the pattern of God, is that he blesses you to become a blessing. He gives you this encounter with grace so that you can embody grace to others. It's always down the line. It never just stops with you. And Paul says that I've given you the ministry of reconciliation in this new creation thing that Jesus is doing. And the next verse is he spells out what reconciliation should look like in our posture and our mission of reconciliation. He says this, um, he, Christ gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. So reconciliation, it's like a $7 word, right? But the reality of what reconciliation is, is that it restores broken relationship to right relationship. And how did God do this through Jesus? 
that Jesus went to the cross and he took upon himself our tab for all of our brokenness, that we had caused others, that we had caused ourselves all of our sin. And he didn't count people's sins against them because he took it upon himself at the cross. I mean, this is just the way that reconciliation works on like this divine level. But think of it down on the ground level. Like if you're married in a marriage relationship, you have reconciliation opportunities all the time to where you cannot count people's sins against them, where you can wipe the ledger clean. Just for a random example that has never happened in our home, when uh, we get the kids down for bed and then I just plop down on a couch strolling on my phone and my wife is picking up the toys all around me or still doing dishes and I don't even look up. She has something she can hold against me, right? Right? Right, ladies? Yeah, she has something she can hold against me. But we talk about it from time to time. I learn from it, and then she doesn't hold that against me. She doesn't bring up a couple weeks ago when that actually happened every day against me in the ledger. In a much more cosmic sense, this is what Jesus has done for us at the cross. He didn't hold those things against us because he paid for them. He absorbed the debt that happened in that reality. And so when we go to other people that are different, that have caused us harm, that are leading the world in places where we don't want it, we can go towards them with a spirit, with a posture of reconciliation, and that changes everything. We'll go to the very next verse because he plays out more of what this posture and what this job of reconciliation looks like. He says, we, Christ followers, are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. I love this definition of our identity because it talks about our posture. It talks about our work. It talks about what we're supposed to be. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are an ambassador of Christ in his kingdom. In the same way that America has an ambassador go to other nations and represent the whole government of the United States, you and I are representing the reign, the rule, the kingdom of Jesus when we walk into conversations, to meetings, when we're on Facebook, when we're on those digital spaces where we want to be keyboard warriors. We're reminded that we are Christ's ambassadors. Do you remember, uh, if you were back here in February, my friend Marty Solomon came and he talked about Leviticus and we talked about this call to be priests And a priest was not someone who is high above other people telling people what they're supposed to do. But one of the roles of a priest was to facilitate people's relationship with God, to let them know where they are, that there's a God who loves them and is for them and invite them in to this reconciled relationship. This is what an ambassador for Christ does. Not someone who points the finger, not someone who's a keyboard warrior to fight back, but someone who stands in the gap and says, I want you to know what God is like in his posture towards you, that he loves you and that he is for you. And I want you to be reconciled to him because that's where life is. I think we get this so mixed up. And I, I think the thrust of what Paul's saying here about our identity as being Christ ambassadors by being a minister of reconciliation is, is this reality. We get so mixed up, but it's better than that. Next slide, please. Christ followers aren't called to defend God, to have our fists up, to have our shields up, to fight back for God. I believe that Christ followers are called to represent God and to specifically embody, live out his grace to others, to let people know that there's a God who loves them, that's forgiven them, and all they have to do is walk and accept this forgiveness, and everything's going to change about them. We get so caught up, don't we, in feeling like we have to defend God, that we need to fight back, that we need to like have this hot take or this takedown of what somebody else says. But I don't think that Jesus ever calls us to that. He calls us to be his ambassadors, to be his disciples, to represent 
God to the world and to embody his grace. So as people see the world differently than you do, this is your role. As people that you consider to be the them pass you in life or they post online, this is our role. Paul in another place, he spells this out more in this powerful way in Colossians. He's writing to a group of Jesus followers there, chapter 4. He says this in specifically how we interact with outsiders, with people that aren't believers. This is what uh, Paul challenges us to do. He says, be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversations be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Specifically, in this us versus them reality, Paul says, hey, make the most of every opportunity when you're interacting with these people, especially in the way you use your words. I think Paul would say your words are so, so powerful. So in your conversations with the other political party, with someone who has a different social norm that they're living out than you do, let your words be full of grace. The word for grace in, in the Greek and what the New Testament is written in is the word charis, and it means unmerited favor, undeserved forness. I know I just made up forness. <laughs> undeserved, I am for you. I love you, and I'm going to embody that love and being for you and serving you and being there for you. That's what grace really is. And Paul says, let your conversations be full of grace. Isn't that a challenge? I think so often, we, we think uh, often, well, that just sounds like too loosey-goosey. That sounds like too tolerant. Is this Paul being woke and not really caring about truth and like all those different things that we hear all the, all the time? And, and I do think that what Paul is describing here is a type of tolerance. And I think tolerance, the word, has a bad rap because we give it a weak sauce definition. Uh, I remember years ago reading um, from just a theological giant, in my opinion, who we just lost this last week, Tim Keller, who I quote all the time around here because he mean, meant so much to me. But Tim Keller said this about tolerance, and I want this to soak into the way we understand this. I think this is what Paul's getting at. Keller said this, that tolerance isn't a lack of exclusive beliefs. Tolerance isn't saying nothing matters, all truth is relative. No. He says everyone has exclusive beliefs, right? We all think that we are right about important things, and the world would be better if others agreed. I think that's such a great point, right? We all think that we're right about the most important things, and we all think the world would be better if everybody did what we wanted. But he says this, tolerance is whether your beliefs lead you to treat those disagreeing with you with kindness, respect, and humility. Oh, what a beautiful understanding of what tolerance is. Tolerance doesn't mean that you don't believe anything and nothing matters, but tolerance means that however, whatever you believe, I'm going to treat the person who disagrees with me with love and kindness and respect, and I'm going to be humble towards them. That's what our words being full of grace really means, that we don't forget that on the other side of that screen is someone who matters to God, and they should matter to us as well. Let's go back to that passage in Colossians, because he says another thing that's interesting. He says, let your conversations be always full of grace, being that even though you might not deserve it, I am for you, that kind of grace. Then he says this, let your conversations be seasoned with salt. And I know reading this just on the surface, we think of like, oh, they got salty with me. Oh, man, you better believe it. Like, they got salty with me, right? And so we think they're like snapback words or they're like words where you just get salty at somebody. And that's really not the case at all. That's not in the original context at all. But I, I think growing up as well, I only heard this being like, your words should be attractive because it should make things better because salt makes things taste better. You have a piece of chicken with no salt and it kind of tastes like nothing, right? But like you add salt, it makes things better. And there's a small element to 
to that. But going back to the first century context, they didn't salt things back then because it made things taste better. They salted things because they didn't have refrigeration. They didn't have electricity. So salt, what is it? It's a preservative. It protects the integrity of whatever it is salting. So on one layer, I'm sorry, I did so much work on salt. I could do a 40-minute message on salt. I'm going to try to do it two minutes here. But in one level, salt, you guys, is a preservative. It protects. And so when Paul says, let your words be seasoned with salt, it means that we look at somebody and we don't want to take them down. We don't want to fight them. We want to defend them. We want to protect them. Even if we disagree with them. Paul says that we disagree with them. They're outsiders. But even if we see the world differently than they do, I'm going to embrace them. I want to protect them. Is that our posture towards people that make us mad, that are different than us? That we want to stand in the gap for them? Hmm. So often it's not mine. There's another dimension of what salt is. If you go back to the Old Testament, every time you see salt brought up in the Old Testament around a covenant, around a deal, there was deals that were like the salt covenant that was forever. It was committed. It was something that was considered eternal. It was something uh, that were two people that were at odds. They have now come back and they have peace with each other. And there is friendship between two parties. I think in some level, Paul is saying, let your conversations be seasoned with salt, being like, you should be friends with these people. Don't move away from them. Invite them to coffee. Have a meal with them. Be friends with them. Befriend them, even if they're different than you. What a challenge. But season with salt is protective. It's defensive. It's friendship. It's committed towards them. What a challenge for us in the way that we use our words. And I'm thinking of myself, but I also, I follow most of y'all on social media too. We can do better. Jesus invites us to do better with people that we disagree with. So what I want to do for the rest of our time, I just want to give you like five different practices Five different things that I think will help us diffuse our anger and embody and represent God and embody his grace to people that we disagree with, people that you might see the world differently from. Five practices. The first is this, and it's got to start here if you're a follower of Jesus, is remember your identity. Start there. Remember who you are. That your first and last name, if you're a follower of Jesus, is in Christ. It's beloved. It's not who you voted for in the last election. It's not what you believe about gender, sexual ethics. It's not the red hat or I'm with her or anything like that. No, it is that your identity is found in Jesus. It's the most important thing about you. I like to say it's your first and it's your last name. Remember your identity first, my friends. That changes so, so much. The scriptures tell us this, that you are good and you are enough all the way back in Genesis 1, that you are chosen in Ephesians 1. You are his child from Galatians 3. You are a new creation. We read that today in 2 Corinthians. You are forgiven, Ephesians 1. You are loved, Romans 8. You are accepted, John 15. You are his masterpiece, Paul says in Ephesians 2. That's who you are. Remember that first. Notice what you're not. You're not a culture warrior. You're not a moral gatekeeper or a moral policeman. You're not there to point out how outsiders are so wrong and how you are so right. Paul says in one letter, I think it's 1 Corinthians, he says, who am I to judge outsiders? My role is not to like judge their moral character if they don't follow Jesus. Like That's not what we're talking about here. But so often we spend so much time, did you see what Marley Cyrus did? Did you see what Beyonce said? Like, well, that's not our role. We need to remember our identity. 
And what Paul understands is that understanding your identity will affect your behavior. If you start with understanding who you are and your worth, it'll affect the way that you actually behave. We're trying to implement this at home with our four-year-old Jack, uh, who uh, he's just such a character, and he, he has these big feelings, and he's so smart. But like all little kids, they only think about themselves. And so uh, myself trying to call myself any kind of a wordsmith, I'm like, we're going to have a family motto, a family mantra. We're going to get a sign. We're going to get stickers and put it on their backpacks and all that stuff. We're going to say this. This is the Larison family mantra. Larisons look out for others. Don't you like that? I like it a lot. My wife thinks it's cheesy. I love it. <laughs> Larisons look out for others. So we're always talking to Jack like, hey, you're a Larison. What do Larisons do? And he go, looks out for others. Or like, he'll be like, I don't know. I'm not a Larison. I'm Darth Vader is sometimes what he says too. But I'm like, Larisons, we look out for others. How can you look out for Poppy today? How can you look out for Mimi? How can you look out for Becca? How can you look out for Mommy? All these kind of things. We're always trying to get him to think about that. Because if he understands that he's a Larison, what do Larisons do? We're not thinking about number one. We're thinking about others. We have a wide-angle view to see other people and where they are and what they might be thinking and feeling. Oh, it's a grand experiment. I hope it works. <laughs> but my point is, when you understand your identity and your family motto, it changes the way you behave. So we've got to start here by understanding who we are. And our role, if you're a follower of Jesus, your role is to represent God and embody his grace. You are his ambassador. So get busy doing that and put down the swords and put down the shields, the fear and the defense. Next, here's another practice I want to invite you into. It's defined an affirmation. When we have these conversations with people that are so different than us and they're, they fall on a different ideological or worldview spectrum, it's so easy and it's so quick and simple and boring to see like this is why they're wrong. This is why uh, they should be condemned because this is what's wrong. This is what's condemning about what they believe. I think the call of Jesus is to go deeper and it's actually to look beneath the surface to see an affirmation, to find something that's beautiful and good, something that the spirit of God has birthed in them from creation. So often we forget that the scripture story starts at Genesis 1 where God tells us that we are all good and we are beloved. We just skip to Genesis 3 where they take the bite of the fruit and it all goes to hell in a handbasket. But what does it look like to sit across the table with someone who you have profound disagreements with and you try to find an affirmation of who they are? This might just be something along the lines of, I love that you're so passionate about this. It might be along the lines of, man, I affirm that we see this differently, but we all want the same thing. We want a better world for ourselves and for our children. We just find different ways to get there. That might be there. But it also might be in personality traits, right? You, I mean, you know the old adage that every drug dealer is just an incredible entrepreneur in the long, wrong line of work, right? For someone who is just so good with people, got such a hustle to make it happen, they're just doing it in a destructive way. But you can look at a drug dealer and you can be honest and look them in the eyes and be like, man, you are so skilled at what you do. Stop doing it. But you are so skilled in what you do. And God has created you with this kind of people, passion, Oh, man, I would love to help you redirect that, right? You think about creatives, secular creatives who are making incredible art, but the lyrics might be saying something that's against your worldview. You can still say, man, they are so talented that God gave them that ability to be creative. You can affirm that in them, even if you disagree with what they end up putting out. I think... Jesus, people, we are called to find an affirmation, to find that original blessing before it got marred by the original curse. Say like, oh, this is how God has created you, and it is beautiful. Find that. And it might be a challenge, but man, we should be seeking it. 
Find an affirmation. So remember your identity. Find an affirmation. Here's another idea here. Ask good questions. Did you guys know that Christians aren't known for asking questions? We're known for a hot take. Here's a Bible verse. Get in, get out, take down. That is, our per- that is right now our reputation. But what's fascinating to me and so frustrating to me is that Jesus was known for asking questions in an infuriating way. In the Gospels, you guys, Jesus has, the people have looked this up and counted. He asked, he was, um, he asked 307 questions. 307 questions. That's a big test. Jesus asked 307 questions. He answered three questions. That had to be infuriating, right? But Jesus was curious. Jesus' followers should be curious. Instead of just starting with why you're wrong and making declarative statements towards people, what if we got curious and we asked people more about why they believe what they believe, what led them to this conclusion, why they're so passionate about it? We start to live and walk in their shoes to consider their upbringing and be like, you know what? If I had experienced what you had experienced, I would probably believe what you believe too. You see how that takes the temperature down? It stops the the warring between the two, but it it slows us down to ask questions. And again, this is not saying that you don't believe anything and there's no truth that you hold on to, but it lowers the temperature, and dare I say, it makes you look and sound more like Jesus in the process. We should be known for being curious people, asking questions. Here's one more. A couple more. Oh, no, here's, here's what um, James, the brother of Jesus, says about this idea. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Be quick to listen, to ask questions and hear what they're saying so that you can understand. Slow to speak. And then he says it's going to lead to less anger as well. So ask good questions. Here's the next one right here. To use salty words. And I don't mean be like snarky at all the way we think of it. But to think, like, what are words, like we talked about salt, right? What are words that are protective of someone who sees them and is for them? What are words that are friendship kind of words, being committed to others kind of words? And whatever kind of worldview that you're walking in, man, this would be so beautiful if when you talk to someone who sees the world differently than you do, you're like, okay, I'm going to get salty with my words. I'm going to literally protect them. I'm going to honor them. I'm going to be graceful towards them and be friendly towards them. Or here's the other side of the using salty words. Sometimes we just need to keep our mouth shut in the name of Jesus. Anybody with me? Yes. Like Keep your mouth shut in the name of Jesus. And I don't even mean that as a joke. Like because of Jesus, we just need to stop. We need to not say what we think. We need to like just let it go. And that's what it might look like for us to be salty with our words. And here's the, uh, the last one. And this is so important. Don't let fear drive you. In our interactions with people that see the world differently than y- you and I do, or even if we see the world slightly differently, man, don't let fear drive you. You know what's underneath of the fear of the things we don't understand is honestly a lack of trust in God doing his job. So often we think like, well, oh God, he must be asleep at the wheel. We don't say that, but we're thinking, is God king? Is God taking human history somewhere? Uh, when Jesus said that he was going to go to the right hand of God, the father, like, do we trust that? Or do we think that he's falling asleep at the wheel? Because so often our anger comes out because we just... Don't trust that God is ruling and he's reigning and he's taking us somewhere. So don't let fear drive you. Let trust drive you and let love drive you to represent him and embody his grace. I'm going to put all five of these up on the screens for us. 
Which one of these for you is something that you need to invite God into this week? What's part of this conversation that you need to invite God into so that you cannot be stewing or angry or snarky towards people that see the world differently than you do? But you should start there and invite God to remind you of who you are and your first name. <laughs> it's to help you find an affirmation for someone that honestly you can't stand, but to find that original blessing underneath what you disagree with. Is it for you? Are, are, are you just not curious about others? Do you assume the worst? Do you assume that someone with monstrous beliefs is a monster? Or will you settle to ask good questions? What about your words? Maybe for you, your words are not salty in the biblical way. <laughs> but you're good at snark. You're good at a hot take. You're good at a put down, which I'm really good at that naturally. Maybe for you, you need to commit your words to be protective, to be kind, to be generous words. Or just to keep your mouth shut in the name of Jesus. <laughs> what about you with fear? Are you letting fear about what's happening in the world like drive you to be white-knuckled and ready to fight? Or do you need to trust that because Jesus rose from the dead, he's got this, and that he's leading us forward together? I love this quote um, from Andy Stanley, a pastor and author. He says this. I think it's so powerful. He says, never make a point at the expense of making a difference. I don't need to tell you this, but we're living in the midst of a culture that loves to make a point. We love the dopamine hit when we like jam it down and we throw down and we're like, oh, they're never going to have a comeback for that. Or we feel so self-righteous and self-righteousness is a heck of a drug, isn't it? But never make a difference or never make a point at the expense of making a difference. Because you know how we make a difference in the Jesus way, in the Jesus kingdom thing that he's doing? We make a difference not by defending God, not by going to war against culture for God, but we make a difference together when we represent God and we embody his grace. And even when we disagree, we meet that disagreement and that person with kindness and respect and tolerance. That's how we make a difference together. I want to invite you, when we have our anger, to put down our swords and pick up our towel to serve them and to love them. That's how we make a difference. But we've got to start with us, right? Because the world's gone mad. But we don't have to play by those rules. We play by a different kingdom, a different reign, a different rule, the rule of Jesus.